Our reading this morning is from uh, Genesis 1 and 2. We'll start in Genesis 1 and verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now let's go down to chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the, in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. We started a series in Genesis last week, going back to the beginning, and we were spending, I, I told you, several weeks in just these first two chapters. So we thought last week about how we were created for God's glory. And so we were talking about how Genesis 1 is set in God's throne room. And we're looking out from there as he's making his royal declarations at creation. And we will think in subsequent weeks about how we're created for relationships, and we'll think about how we're created for work and rest. But we're really coming into this idea, focusing in on this idea of what it means to be created in God's image this week. So these are big questions. We need God to help us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us, that your spirit would work through it, that we might understand all that you have for us, what we were made for, and even what all of Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, if you do ever visit Harvard, uh, you'll likely get off the T-stop, the subway, on the western end of Harvard Yard. And 
That's the oldest part of the yard. It's these Georgian buildings. Uh, but if you make your way through the yard, start heading east, the buildings get generally newer. And by newer, I mean 100 years old. But, uh, but if you get to the far eastern edge of it, there's a small quad made up of uh, the, the gate and three buildings. And if you look to the south, you'll be facing the facade of Emerson Hall. Emerson Hall was and still is the home of the philosophy department. It was built in or finished in 1906. And at the start of that calendar year in 1906, the faculty of the Department of Philosophy voted on what the facade ought to say, what ought to be engraved on it. And they chose an old Greek philosophical dictum. Man is the measure of all things. Now, the funny thing is, they were still finishing the building during the summer of 1906, and so As always happens with college campuses, everybody kind of went away, including most of the faculty, for most of the summer, and they came back, and no one quite knows who did this, but somebody made a slight amendment to the plans. And lo and behold, as the new finished building was revealed to everyone, what was written across the top of, and still is written across the top of the facade is, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And it brings in, that story brings into focus what is our confusing idea of who we are. And to some extent, uh, the, the Bible teaches us that we are both the capstone of creation, yet we're made from dust. That's what Hamlet said, right? What is what a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties. And he goes on and on about that for a while. And he says, and yet, what is this quintessence of dust? And you add to that, of course, also our own sinfulness, which, which elevates our pride, right, to make us think that we are perhaps even on footing with God. <laughs> we'll get to Genesis 3 in a few weeks and and we'll see what that looks like. On the other hand, it has horrible ramifications, our sin, on the way in which we actually live our lives, who we are. So we are a confusing, muddled mess. And I'll tell you, theologians have wondered about this idea of the image of God for a long time. And there's been there's a bunch of different ways people have thought about it. One of them is to try to think about what makes us both like God, but also in in that sense, distinct from the rest of creation. And there's some, some really helpful and some not-so-helpful things that have come out of that. Uh, some have noted this idea that we're relational, we're made in the image of a Trinitarian God. We will unpack a lot of that next week. But one of the things that has become clearer and clearer, especially in the biblical scholarship, is that this idea of the image of God is linked to the task, to the calling that is given to Adam. And we can summarize that task as three things. Care for the creation, combat against evil, and the consummation of God's presence. Care, combat, and consummation. It's my second week in a row of alliterated, so you're welcome. But care, combat, and consummation. So let's think about this care piece for, for a while. 
Notice what we did, and maybe you picked this up. We switched between two different narratives. Now, they're connected. They're not, they're not disconnected narratives. But remember, last week we were talking about how chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2 are told from this perspective of God's throne room, right? It is God's perspective on the world. And, you know, and, it unfold, and so it all unfolds in this, in this week. It's all orderly. We talked about all these things last week. I'm not going to give that sermon again. But from, God, from the God's eye view, right, as he's thinking about what humanity is, he says that we are, we are called uh, to have dominion over everything. And he goes on, he says in verse 28, to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. And he goes back over all, all the different aspects of creation, right? So we're supposed to have dominion. This is this idea that comes up uh, very clearly. And so in the context of chapter 1, in the throne room of God, you therefore have the king telling those that he's created that they have authority in his name over all that he's made. Those words dominion, subduing, are all, they all belong to the vocabulary of a king. And something weird happens in chapter 2, verse 4. We get, this, we get this little beginning. These are the generations of. Now, that's, if you know Genesis well, you'll recognize that turn of phrase. It comes up ten times in Genesis. It is, remember, ancient books did not have paragraphs. <laughs> they didn't have, I mean, the Bible didn't have chapters and verses, numbers. And so this was a heading kind of throughout Genesis. Genesis is very organized in that way to kind of tell you we're moving into a new narrative section. In fact, one of the reasons to actually understand what we were saying last week about chapter 1 as being in some way a a distinct piece is because it, it exists outside these headings. It is, you might say, a prologue to the whole thing. And we were talking about how God has sort of set the stage for the drama that's about to unfold. And so, so what we do is we have this God, God, you know, sort of God's eye perspective in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, we're coming right down to earth, right? Right into the dust. And we see Adam formed, and we see that God has started a garden. And he puts Adam there. And so the task before Adam in chapter 2 is to tend a garden. In other words, the task of dominion over the earth starts with gardening. Kind of weird to think about how those two things work together, isn't it? Because one seems so grand, and it is. And yet, the beginning is in a garden. He's told to work and to keep it. And in some ways, this is really helpful because, you know, Christianity has been criticized uh, by those who are environmentally minded uh, as having a a kind of perverse relationship with creation. And I I think it's probably fair to critique some Christians in having that sense that we could just use the earth in whatever way we want. Yet what you see here is the way that that call to have dominion over the earth works out is in care for it care over all that God has made. So that the idea of power in Scripture is very different than much of the vocabulary that we use for it 
out in the world. I mean, the, the roots of our language come from guys like Nietzsche and Foucault, and we tend to talk about power in a way in which it is, it's an either-or. You either have power or you don't, or the, to the degree that you have power, I don't have power. It is a, and it is a finite resource, right? It is a, it is a zero-sum game, as they say, right? That, you know, it's, it's, there's only so much of it, and you're just kind of fighting over it. And indeed, our <laughs> in election year, we're reminded of, of how prevalent that kind of vocabulary is. But here's the deal. That is not the way power works for God. Because God's power is generative. He, he makes a creation. He makes people that have their own, uh, their own agency. He makes this creation that has its own existence. And that is in no way a threat to his control. And so too, Adam is told in that gardening idea is so helpful for us to understand here, right? That Adam is told to, to work in the same way, right? Because when you garden, you're cultivating life. And they're, they're told to be fruitful and multiply as humanity. Like, ha, like give more life. <laughs> like, create more life, right? Not create the way God creates, but procreative creation, right? So th- there, is, there is this idea, right, that the way that they're supposed to care for the world is deeply involved, and it is not about draining whatever we can out of what's there, but in fact, cultivating it. That's what's so beautiful about this idea of a garden. In fact, parenting itself is one of the most telling metaphors about that kind of power. And if you can't imagine it, then, you have to, then just think about that. Andy Crouch, in his book, Playing God, uses that illustration of parents, and he says, he says, look, we have all this God talk or this power talk that's like, that says that power will corrupt and power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he says, but look, notwithstanding the absolute power parents have over their children in the first days and months of their lives, the overwhelming majority of parents are not corrupted, certainly not absolutely corrupted by it. Right? In fact, many parents find themselves awakened to new capacities for resilience, sacrifice, and servanthood they didn't know they had before. This, these are the kinds of things that God has in mind when he gives us dominion over the world. It's this kind of care. And, and again, the gardening idea is, is, is so powerful, right? Because it tells us then that care involves at least two things, competency and creativity. It involves competence, right? And, and you see this again as, in verses eight, uh, was it, 19 and 20, when Adam has brought all the animals. And he's supposed to discern what they're about. Now, it's a little messy in English, animal names, right? partly because English itself is a little messy in all of its background and German and French and all these other languages. Uh, but most animal names have some kind of relation to how it looks or what it does. One of the places, even in English, that this is really obvious is with a lot of birds' names. You know, so what is a sandpiper? But a bird that pipes into the sand looking for its food, right? Uh, most songbirds are named after the noise that they make, the song that they sing. And so, so you, you have Adam exercising wisdom, right? Look, try, understanding what this animal is about. I've taken up woodworking a, a few years ago, and I'm, I'm still terrible, so this is, this is not a brag. 
But the funny thing about that, right, is you can read books. You can, you can try to, you, you know, you can, you can watch YouTube videos on how to do it right. But there's a kind of competence, a know-how that you will not learn until you actually start working with wood. To understand how the grain works, to understand how different woods work. You know, this, there's, there's a, there is a competency that comes with the actual work itself that has to be learned. But this kind of competency is the sort of thing that Adam is told to have, is asked to have, and he spends time working on it. He spends time with the animals, thinking about what they're like. And he is, of course, if he's tending a garden, that requires a lot of time, particular attention to everything that's growing there. And it requires creativity. I mean, that's what a garden is, right? I mean, it's not just a bunch of wild <laughs> trees and plants that have just grown there, and you just sort of mow the grass around it, right? Like, it requires that you move plants in you so that you highlight maybe one particular flower in one area of the garden, or uh, you create a canopy of the trees, right? It is a place where it's walkable, it's livable, even as a person, as a human, and yet the life of these plants is fostered. It requires a kind of creativity. I mean, this is why the arts have always been valued in Christianity. Even the earliest Christians painted on the sides of the catacombs when they were worshiping underground. This is why it's so important and maybe bizarre uh, that we think about this as Christians even in our own vocations. Even if that's to stay at home, is to think that you know, there's a creative task given to us. Now, you don't have to be a great artist. You don't have to be the next great unknown artist of our generation to exercise creativity, right? But Christians in America have largely given up on this. So Gregory Wolf, uh, in his book, Beauty Will Save the World, says this. He says, it's precisely the fear of imagination that has led many Christians in America to create a subculture with Christian publishers and Christian record labels and Christian art galleries. The underlying message conveyed by these products is that they are safe. They have the Christian seal of approval. But get this, this is a devil's bargain. In exchange for safety, these products have given up their imaginative power. And this is just where the strangest irony of all emerges. This subculture has then rushed to produce Christian versions of almost every secular trend, from heavy metal, Christian heavy metal bands to Christian romance novels to Christian self-help books. I mean, if there's one thing I think that American evangelicalism has often lacked, it is not energy. It's real creativity. Because to actually, and look, we're not living even in this perfect world, right? We know about the fall, and we are going to continue to talk about that a little bit later in the sermon. But that's, it is hard to work through that, but that is the good work in which God has given us, is to exercise creativity, to begin to, th- to think with competence and creativity about all that we have to do. Whether that is keeping a garden, whether that is parenting, whether that is pursuing your career, competence and creativity.
That's all part of the care that God has given us. Now, we're going to talk about work and rest another sermon, and we'll come back to some of those ideas. But it's crystal clear here that the way in which we begin to exercise that dominion is by exercising care. But it's more than care, it's also combat. And here it's really helpful to look at chapter 2, verse 15. The call that God gives to, to man is to work and to keep the Garden of Eden. Now, those are two, work and keep are two relatively generic Hebrew words. And so it works within this context of the garden. It's, it's clear, right? You're supposed to, as you would with a garden, tend it. But what's fascinating, and we, we mentioned this in passing last week, is that in other places where those two verbs are paired up, it always describes the work of the priest. You could look at Numbers 3, 7, and 8 to see this. Um, but in those cases, the word work is often translated ministering or serving at the temple. And keeping it is usually translated guarding. So what, I, what I'm saying is this. While, while the idea works very practically in gardening, it also clearly evokes what we said last week that God is creating a space to be with us. It invokes this priestly idea. And so, too, we see at the beginning of chapter 3 in Genesis that Eden is the place where God comes and walks with them, meets with them. So that Adam and Eve's task is priestly in that sense. It is just like the priest they're supposed to guard this special place that God comes and meets humanity. And if you ask, guard it from what? Well, the next chapter is going to tell you. Because Satan shows up. And this is, all, this is the context in which the idea of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil comes into play. Because from the very beginning, humanity is supposed to learn good and evil. Now, I know what you're saying. They're not supposed to touch the tree. I agree. But look, the deal with the tree is it is not like the apple in Snow White. It's not filled with some sort of magical juice, right? And like, oh, the minute they bit into it, right, they were poisoned. No. The point of the tree is that they're supposed to learn, and the question isn't whether they will learn about good and evil. They need to know good and evil because, this, because Satan is coming. Might already be hanging out. We don't really know, <laughs> you know how long he was hanging around for. Might already be, they need to be able to discern good and evil. The question isn't whether they will, it is how they will learn good and evil. Whether they will learn it by listening to God, by working within His wisdom, or whether they will try to be wise for themselves. You see the difference? See, the tree represents a kind of crisis moment. The question isn't whether they need to know good and evil, it is whether they will listen to God about good and evil. It's whether they will discern that it is from God that we learn all of this. That God's the one who not only has the right, but the wisdom to pronounce what is good and evil. They're going to need to know this, right? Because they need to deal with that snake. And so this is the idea in reform circles. We, we refer to the covenant of works being the baseline for our relationship with God. 
This is a really important idea. Because what this means is that while the term covenant doesn't appear in chapter 2 or chapter 1, the whole idea is here, right? There's a backdrop of all that, of all that God has provided. And, uh, and he makes a claim on their lives and he says, look, you do this and you'll get this awesome thing. You don't do this and it goes badly, right? You obey and you'll be confirmed in life. Ongoing life. <laughs> you disobey and you will die. And in fact, what the Bible is telling us is from the get-go, all of us are in covenant with God. God doesn't have some, God doesn't, like, humanity doesn't exist without being in covenant with God. And we are, are either in Adam, in the, his failure, or we've got to look somewhere else. We've got to find some other way. think about that in a few minutes, but you get the point, right? That there's an obedience, there's a kind of moral discernment that's at the heart of this task. Because evil isn't a substance that you know, sort of comes into existence, right? It is a choice about how you deal with the world around you. They need this kind of discernment. And we live in an age in which that is really a tough message. I, I don't know if you, if you were in... Some of you are just too young for this. Um, some of you may not have been around the church a lot in the 80s and 90s. But uh, when I was growing up, you heard a lot of talk, a lot of worry about relativism, about postmodernism, words that nobody even uses anymore. Um, but we don't use them, not because they're not helpful words, but because, in fact, there's no fight left to have. They've won. And I don't mean that in a fatalistic way, because this is the strangest thing. On the one hand, Western, the Western world, and in particular America, is very relativistic. Right? We don't believe that right and wrong is somehow rooted in the way that the world, the universe is. But what has come in was not what everybody was afraid of in the 80s and 90s, not a anything goes, but what instead has grown up is a different kind of legalism. One in which, because we can't settle our disagreements, they have to be resolved politically. They have to be resolved by grabbing power and forcing others to comply with your vision for what is good. And here's the deal. That is both on the right and the left. Maybe after two weeks of Conventions, you can see that clearly. Right? It is about forcing others to see the way that you see it. And I get it. Look, some of us have, are sympathetic to one side and some of us are sympathetic to the other. What we need to understand is the real challenge we face is not backing a party and grabbing power. It is for Christians to actually have their own distinctive view of what is right and wrong. Because actually, evangelical Christianity had a big part in helping to form that kind of power-grabbing legalism. Meanwhile, all that was feared has come in. 
And that is not a way of saying we are in the worst position possible. But it is a way of saying that Christianity is going to have to get, American Christianity is going to have to get used to being a moral minority, not a moral majority. We're going to have to find ways of realizing that we can't just grab power for ourselves, but in fact, we're going to have to have our own distinctive conviction rooted in God's Word. A distinctive idea of what it means to be God's kingdom. In this way, the church, of course, is going to have to be at the center of it, right? Because if there's going to be a place where a distinctive vision of society is lived out, it will not be in grabbing the reins of political authority, but rather in the lived life of the church. In our love for one another, and most of all, in our love for God. We can't punt on this task because nobody can punt on this task because you all have to make choices about life. I have to make choices about life. The question is, who will we listen to? Will we listen to pundits? Or the Word of God? So we see there is care and there is combat involved and there is... It's all pointing towards this consummation of the world. And some of that, what we just talked about, comes into focus here because God describes humanity as in His image. And here we, maybe we get to the core of the idea. This Hebrew word, Selem. It is, it is a word that is elsewhere, and I don't know how this is going to sit with you, elsewhere in the Bible referred to as, refers to idols. It refers to an image of a thing that's made. Now, I'm not saying that, don't get me wrong, it's obvious in context here, of course, that God is not saying that we should worship one another. <laughs> that's pretty clear, very clear in the rest of the Bible. But the idea is that if he was the king and he was making this world to be his palace, like any ancient Near Eastern king, his image would be all around it laying claim to it. Which is why this is such a powerful moral idea, right? This idea of the image of God. Because, listen, if you walked in and desecrated the image of the king, that was bad news for you. Because that said everything about what you thought of the king, right? It's why it's such a powerful idea. I mean, one that Christians have held on to, right? Because we do live in a culture in which the image of God is not valued. And again, you can draw, you can, this cuts across our political lines. Because on the one hand, we, value the, we don't value the unborn. On the other hand, we don't value those based on the color of their skin. And I know you might be thinking, yeah, I'm of this one side, and we do, but let's just be honest. The practical reality is that we are picking and choosing who it is that we really value, and God will have none of it.
Because God has said, my image is in every person. And look, we all know how the story goes. We do make a hash out of it. We are like mirrors that are cracked, but retain the image nonetheless. And you see, the, the task then that is given is to multiply, right? We're supposed to multiply, fill the earth, and then fill the earth and subdue it. And here we get a much bigger task. You see, because making babies is a necessary, but it's not a sufficient task <laughs> to the task here. Like, that's part of it, right? Because uh, there's just Adam and Eve <laughs> at the beginning here. They got to have more children. But the idea of filling the earth and subduing it is to say to extend the borders of the garden to fill the whole earth. God had marked out this little spot for Adam and Eve. And the goal of even having more kids is so that the borders of that would extend. And if you don't believe me, look at the end of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22, because the new heavens and the new earth is a garden full of the tree of life. That is the goal. That's the direction it's all heading. That's why he needs a helper. We'll think more about what that means next week. But, but you get the idea, right? Like That's way too big a task. I mean, not only is the procreation part impossible, but the, but the actual task requires way more than Adam himself has the ability to accomplish. He can't be everywhere at once, all over the world. He, this is a huge, enormous task that humanity is given. But it is interesting that the idea of the image of God recedes into the background for the rest of the Old Testament. It's here at the beginning, and of course we know things kind of go wrong. And so that idea recedes. Now some of these different things, the care and combat and all, you know, we're talking about are still there. But after chapter 9 of Genesis, the idea of the image of God isn't mentioned again in the Old Testament. Kind of fascinating. Kind of weird. Partly because, and maybe... (laughs) Maybe it's because that idea of image and idol are so closely linked. And this is one of the things that is true of all of human existence, is that we always are looking for something to worship. We can't stand not worshiping something. And when we left God, we had to find something to substitute. And look, in... For a lot of human history, that meant different false gods and different idols, and that's still true in parts of the world. But for many of us, it isn't that. We don't maybe physically bow down to an object, but there are objects that consume our imagination. There are plenty of things that we'd spend all of our energy on. And nobody puts it better than David Foster Wallace. Uh, You know, he was a He was a novelist in the 90s and early 2000s. And a few years before he took his own life, he gave a commencement speech uh, at Kenyon College in 2005. Uh, It's reprinted several places as This is Water. I think you can find it online, different places. But this is what he says, and this is fascinating because he is no Christian. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. 
Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. I might editorialize and say many of those other things might too, but he says if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to numb your fear. Worship your intellect being smart and you will always end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. You get what he's saying, right? He's saying exactly what Augustine said at the beginning of the Confessions, that our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Because we are made to reflect the beauty of something. We are the image of God. We are made to reflect back His glory. And when that image turns other places, all we can do is reflect what's there. And if we're reflecting something that's empty, as indeed everything else is, if it's not filled with the glory of God, then we will be empty. But the strange thing about this idea of the image of God is it does actually come back up eventually. It doesn't come up again in the Old Testament after the beginning chapters of Genesis. It doesn't come back up in the gospel stories of Jesus. But instead, as the apostles are reflecting on what Jesus accomplished, they come back to the idea of the image of God. You can look at 2 Corinthians 4, 4. You can look at Hebrews 1, 3. But this is what Paul says in Colossians 1, 15. He says of Christ that he is the image of the invisible God. He goes on and talks about how he's God himself, right? He's the one through him, you know, who created everything through himself and for himself. And then, then he goes on, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, what Paul's getting at is that when Jesus showed up, he lived the life you couldn't live. He lived the life Adam failed to live. Jesus lived the first fully realized human life. You know that? Like fully realized. Jesus actually did what Adam was supposed to do. He met evil in combat and destroyed it by giving his own life. He met he, he, he is bringing about the consummation of all things. He's begun it in the resurrection of his own body. And by sending the Spirit out into his church. Jesus has already exercised care, right? Healing the lame, the deaf, the blind. And one day he will restore all things. Because again, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, right, 
What do you hear? But behold, I make all things new. When that new heavens and new earth is realized, Jesus will have completed the care of this universe. He will have conquered sin and death, and He will bring into completion what we were called to do to fill the earth with the glory of God. What's even more powerful than all that is that we're told that we now are being conformed into His image. So Paul says in Romans 8.29 that we're being conformed into the image of the Son. So we are being made back into the image of God via the Son who has taken on flesh. That we are being changed into that. Which I guess gets us back to Psalm 8. What is humanity that God's mindful of him? It surely is not that we have achieved much. It is surely not that we have been virtuous. It is surely not in the beauty of all the things that we've made, but rather in God's love. God is mindful because He is the maker who has made us in love. He is the maker who has pursued us in love, even when we turned away. And it is by His grace, knowing what we would do before creation, it is by His grace in sending His Son to give His life, that we were brought back to Him. The answer to the question, what is man, what, that you are mindful of Him, is because you are God. And you make all things beautiful. Not us. But God is restoring the beauty and the potential and one day we'll fully reveal all of what creation was meant to be. And even now, even now, he's at work doing that in your life by his spirit. Let's thank the Lord. Father, we praise you that we are made in your image. That there isn't a person whose path we cross that you didn't fashion. who is beautiful because they're your creation. Yet, Lord, we also know that we have made ourselves, our own hearts, even this world ugly in innumerable ways. But you didn't leave it that way. You have sent your Son to restore all things. And we praise you that even now he has given us the Spirit so we might be transformed into His image, to be restored to the way things ought to be. So we pray, as the church has prayed for 2,000 years, that Christ, You would come and show us the beauty of what creation was always meant to be as the image of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.